as Sean and I were, when we first connected today on our call, Sean was like, this book is such a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Never fear change. Life is too short for fear. Chase what is desired. I can do this all day. Would you mind identifying what you are? We're the best friend squad. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Welcome to the rodeo. Ladies and gentlemen, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. This is the way. I have spoken. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fenty Show. Red versus blue, but this time as a love triangle. (laughs) Okay, I'm Sean. I'm Jen. And today we're here with Tracy Dion. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Finally, I'm excited to be here. Uh, we are so excited to have you. Sadly, not for our Sequest podcast quite yet, but we will get we there. Will. We will. So for folks that don't know who you are, and I would be very suspect at this point if they have not heard about Legendborn at the very least, uh, you are a UNC Chapel Hill graduate with degrees in performance studies and communication, and the author of works that are appearing in, uh, I believe, Our Stories, Our Voices, and the upcoming Star Wars Empire Strikes Back from a certain point of view, which is not out yet, as I recall. But you're here for your first novel, Legendborn which is from McElderry Books. And so also you're just super awesome, I think, based on what the internet tells me. So <laughs> I, I'm excited that the internet is saying that Tracy is cool because it's true. And uh, so is this book. So first things first, tell us about Legendborn. What is it about? What's the elevator pitch you gave to your agent? I so Legendborn is a, about a 16-year-old girl named Bree Matthews who's grieving the loss of her mother and uh, decides to infiltrate a secret society because she believes that they may know the truth behind her mother's mysterious death. All is going not so well uh, when they reveal that they are the descendants of the Knights of the Round Table and her mission gets a lot more dangerous and fun. And um, yeah, that's the book. That's the book. Dangerous and fun. I, I'm very curious about this phrasing, dangerous and fun, <laughs> given the various events that happened in this book. Uh, dangerous, definitely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Fun. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. It, it is. A, sure, I'll, I'll give you that. It's occasionally pretty fun. Uh, but OK, so let's start with the the real big thing here, which is already kind of brought up uh, with the elevator pitch, which is something this book's getting a lot of attention for, is its treatment of Arthurian legend, its different take on it, and one that sort of takes this European slash British Isles mythology, but puts it in the perspective of a black teenager. And so I was curious, what kind of originally inspired you to explore this legend? Like, why why Arthur? What What's the deal? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I've had this question asked before. And I'm always I always smile because I love I love saying that I didn't even start with Arthur because I didn't. And I actually think that that's part of um, part of why Legendborn is has been received the way it has been. I started with a personal story um, that created Brie. So Brie is grieving the loss of her mother starts the book from a place of, you know, loss curiosity because she doesn't have quite the answer that she wants about what happened there. Um, Something very similar happened to me and then I lost my mother and there was a medical answer, but I felt like I didn't have the answer answer, which I think is pretty common when when you lose someone you love. And, um, but I did find out through talking to family members that my mother had lost her own mother at sort of the same age. So there was this like echo effect. Um, and the same thing had happened to my grandmother, as I found out later. So as a writer and as a genre loving writer, of course, I'm like, what is the story there? How could that happen? And that's really the birth of the main character, Brie, was me having this conversation with myself about, you know, what, what, what could possibly have created this pattern in my family. And I got to King Arthur because I've always been a fan of King Arthur and the Arthurian legends. I, um, I talk about this a lot. The Dark is Rising sequence by Susan Cooper is one of my favorite contemporary fantasy stories ever. 
Mine too. Um, <laughs> I really love it. I just it 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 was a pivotal discovery of my life when I read the, that series and which is based in like this you know sixties and seventies. But it just ugh, I love it. And so it, Arthur had sort of been hanging around the back of my mind for a while. And I realized when I was asking questions about my own life that I wanted to know you know what lives and losses. Uh, get immortalized in legend and which ones get lost to history and that question was circling and of course that led me to what makes certain stories legendary and that very easily is a is sort of a a quick hop to arthur because this is an enduring set of legends around a figure um and once i started at you know realizing that arthur was even dealing with those same themes of generations and loss and, and power and death and all of that, you know, the responsibility laid towards the youngest family member, all that stuff is there. So they sort of were talking to each other in my mind um, pretty quickly after after that. Absolutely. And you kind of skipped straight ahead to, to the second question that we had, which obviously one of the most potent themes is grief. It's an absolutely inescapable part of Legend Barn, and not just for Bree, but for most of the other main characters selwyn obviously mick as well like these are creatures i shouldn't say creatures these are people that have experienced great loss in their life and are dealing with it uh in in very different ways so now that you've told us your story of why grief in particular can you talk a bit about how you more specifically saw it informing the characters of Legendborn. So, yes, in terms of how grief affects everyone else, you know, it really, it bled out into the other characters in ways that surprised me, to be honest. It, it wasn't until I got towards, like, maybe, you know, fourth or fifth revision that I realized <laughs> that other characters were wrestling with, um, you know, loss in their own way. Um, but I also think that the magic system necessitates a conversation about grief and loss. So when I say the descendants, uh, that the legend born of the descendants of the Knights of the Round Table, it's a secret society that's been formed around sort of keeping um, sacred, keeping control over the bloodlines of the knights that lived 1500 years ago. And to do that, to, to be in that position, the whole, the whole magical structure and all the logistics have to be around power being passed from generation to one generation to the next um and glorifying that in some ways because the legend born are these you know warriors fighting an ancient magical war but also acknowledging that there are legacies that get transferred and the book is very much about like legacy being a complicated term um and that there are different types of legacies and different types of receptions but they all come from people in our family who have have gone and passed on and then left something for us to reckon with so in some ways it's like every character especially the legendborn are dealing with loss it's just how does it get framed it's the same you know it's the same sort of concept but everybody's looking at it from a different angle absolutely yeah so you've mentioned right that this book deals very much with the issue of legacy and much of Legendborn sort of is handling like the origins of U.S. institutions like UNC Chapel Hill uh, and other other institutions as well. There's secret societies, which you'll probably come back to later. Um, but one of the things that you're, you're sort of exploring here is that the sort of struggle that the various characters have to deal with in terms of the legacies that they may inherit or in other cases have to experience. Uh, Brie has to experience the legacies and see how they sort of reverberate through time. And so I, I guess the I want, really wanted to talk about like your, your interest in like the issues that legacies present to us, both sort of on a broad cultural level, but even for the individual, because so much of this book deals with that precise concern. Yeah. So I went, you know, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, um, as you said, and I went there for two degrees. I worked there after I graduated. And when you go to schools that are just that old, there's a lot of, I mean, with any, any, any old institution, but particularly a higher a institution of higher learning, there's a, a lot of narrative around what it means to be that old, you know, institutions like to tell stories about themselves. Um, and UNC, you really had 
you know, one of the first stories that you'll hear is it's the oldest public school in the country to have graduated students, which it is. And some people just call it the oldest public school in the country. It's, you know, the um, the building that Bree lives in in the book was built by enslaved people. It's the oldest public residential public school residential hall in the country. So UNC has all of these names for itself, stories about itself, about what it means to be the first and what it means to be the oldest and the established and the one leading the charge in terms of higher ed. And, but it just didn't, you know, you don't hear all the other stuff, which is like, yeah, it was built by enslaved people though. Like it was built in the, you know, the late 1700s, not long after the revolutionary war, this wasn't just built, you know, it was built by people who um, were owned by other people. And we don't talk about those. And, and I think that the idea of legacy being a story we tell ourselves just as much as it is actually material inheritance um, is something that has always been super fascinating to me. And when I went to UNC, you're walking in it, you know, a lot about, a lot of Legendborn is about walking through history and that legacies are, are things that can be in the air and can be in your environment as much as they are a physical thing, a material thing, money, in this case, magical abilities, you know, that legacy really is a complicated word in terms of what it means and also who who it impacts because it's such an elegant word i think we get, we frame it around sort of a good thing automatically like 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 this is someone's legacy like you want to leave behind a legacy and you know i think culturally we put this positive sort of spin and this noble spin on it but it's just not that simple um and i happened to go to unc at a time when they were really starting to reckon with sort of formally in the material space of the school, what it meant to uh, memorialize the uh, the people who owned slaves, but not memorialize the people who built the, the actual property that we were all living and studying on. And I was there when they were raising money for the Unsung Founders Memorial, which is a memorial that I mentioned in the book, I describe in the book pretty carefully. Um, and it's one that it's actually in existence at UNC. It's exactly as I've described, except for the location, and it was meant to memorialize and, and honor the enslaved people who built the school. But it it's this really strange, it's this really strange thing, and it was and it was uh, funded by and supported by one of the graduating classes. It was a senior class gift that was their legacy, and it was such a fascinating thing to be a part of to help um, bring that into world at UNC because you're looking at a graduating class of gosh what was it I want to say 2002 that decided that as seniors they wanted to leave behind the memory of people who had never been publicly remembered and that became a memorial at UNC this really heavy obsidian looking table and even when I was there helping to raise money for it on behalf of the seniors, you would call their parents and ask if they wanted to donate money to this class gift that their child had nominated. And the parents were like, no. So often we had parents who were like, no, I don't want to do that. Why would we do that? And so, and it, you know, and then it Jeez. became this, but it's like, it's, it's, it's such a layered thing because it said, well, your, your, your child, you know, Johnny or whomever wanted to do this that's what you know they wanted to leave behind but the parents said well that's not what I want to support leaving behind so I you know it's a very long-winded answer but I feel like legacy was something that just came up and was churned and twisted and turned around so much for me as I was becoming the person who could even begin to write a book like this and um so it just it sort of makes sense that part of what I'm doing is unpacking it in as many ways as possible <laughs> in the book. So I do actually want to follow up on the Unsung Heroes or Unsung Unsung Founders, Founders mm -hmm. Memorial because the the final form is pretty complicated unto itself, not just as you talked about now the the process of bringing it into being which very tie much ties into I think a lot of moments in this book, you know, specifically Bree's experiences with parents, mm -hmm. which were uh, so much fun to read. <laughs> anyway, but I I've heard that there you know there's differing opinions on the effect of the Unsung Founders Memorial, which features enslaved people holding up this table and 
you know, obviously trying to denote that they are the foundation of the school, but also still is enslaved people holding up a table for primarily white students to sit around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about that kind of sort of problematic framing of something that is meant to be positive, but uh, because we're talking about legacy, uh, something that is meant to be positive, but in final form isn't necessarily going to convey the message the same way, especially to different people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say that when I I was an undergrad when I was um, doing some of the fundraising for that, and I, I will say that I really, as it was described to us, it really seemed like a, a lovely thing that it was going to be a place where one could sit and contemplate. And I think that really was the original intention. I don't have the inscription in front of me, but there is an inscription around the table. You sort of have to walk around it to read it. And I think it is meant to be a place to sort of meditate on the history um, of the school. But as you said, the actual the actual embodied effect is that it's a table that you sit on. And what, what do you do at tables? You tend to put stuff on them. So you're you're like actually literally loading down <laughs> the right. carved figures who are holding something up. And I've heard stories of people witnessing, you know, generally what the stories are is that they're witnessing white mothers changing their children's diapers on it you know like that it has been used from anything from lunch to studying to diaper changing to and then of course it's been vandalized at least once or twice um so you know i i do in my mind and i look back and i think about you know what are you communicating and the fact that they're still laboring it's a pretty clear flag that, you know, I think that there's something iffy about it. Um, because you think about memorials, you know, in some ways, I think UNC felt like in, in the institution or the people who helped lead the charge that they were doing a little bit of counterbalance. They were doing a, a little bit of like, well, we know we have Silent Sam, which is a statue that I engage with in the book by not calling, but not calling it. We know we have that. We know we have you know, whole buildings that are named after clan members or whatever. Um, and then we're going to bring in this and that's going to be, a, you know, we're going to sort of t- tip the scales by having something permanent sit here that reflects that. Well, it's a, it's, it's, it's all black. I'm not really a hundred percent sure that it communicates what you want. If you have something that is, you know, like a sort of a void of color in that way. And it's also compared to other things that are, marble or you know this amazing white brick or whatever and so and then those the people that you see on campuses generally who are um you know slaveholders they're just sort of standing triumphantly sitting in nice chairs uh silent sam was holding a gun i mean you have these sort of power poses right and right. then you have other people who are still working. Like it just it it communicates this sort of atlas type vibe as well. That that yeah. is it's very strange. So I I think they're moving the stat the uh, memorial. I talked to somebody on campus earlier this spring, and I think they're actually voting to move it. And I don't know if they're they're going to elevate it or what. But I think they have the the university has realized that the placement of it um, does not condone the type of reverential mood that they we're hoping for um and also with the vandal i think they're trying to like get it to a point where it can't be as easily vandalized but yeah i you know when i look when i go there now well last time i went it was cordoned off they had i think police tape or something basically around it so you couldn't even sit so then it just became well (laughs) like what is this now you know like i can't get close to it i can't sit at the table i can't get close enough to read this inscription because it's been so under, you know, duress, basically, because they're worried that people are going to yeah. damage it. So, yeah, yeah it just, uh, I, 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 I was there when the intentions were stated. And yet, the more and more I thought about it, and I communicate this in the book, the more I'm like, this is actually, this ain't it, you know? I don't think right. I, this ain't it. <laughs> yeah. I, I did pull up the inscription, uh, you know, folks can find uh the Unsung Founders Memorial. There's a wiki page and UNC has a page about it, I believe as well. But the inscription reads, the class of 2002 honors the university's unsung founders, the people of color, bond and free, who helped build the Carolina that we cherish today. 
it's a lovely inscription, you know, like it, you know, the intentions are there, but as with anything with um, social justice or trying to address historical wrongs, intentions really don't take you very far. Um, and it's, yeah. the, you know, it's the effect and the consequences and the impact that, um, on other people and in material world that actually matter. So I'm hoping that, that they, that this plan to move that I've heard about is sort of taking that into account, in which case I would be quite impressed that UNC was paying attention that, Hey, you know, we have these intentions, but it's actually not playing out how we want. I think one of the things too, is that you're not just dealing with the legacy of that as it affects black people although obviously that is very much centered in legendborn clearly as it should be but as with the grief the legacy is also poisoning the white characters mm-hmm. in a very clear way in terms of you know why they are grieving themselves mm-hmm. and loss and all sorts of other issues that I'm going not I'm trying not to spoil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it's not directly poison, yeah, but yeah. wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, it affects them for sure. There are negative consequences. I mean, I think the stories we tell ourselves and then the um, rules that get made around upholding those stories, I think are always something that we should be examining. And, and I think that's very much part of what's got, what's happened to the other characters in the book is like they they there's been a construction a mythology um based in this case it's not really a mythology it's it's a legend but the idea you know the idea of sort of like a beat more than a story i'll say um it's a you know a living breathing um uh, sort of container that helps elevate their their lives and their families and how that actually can be very easily tipped over into sort of the dark side um and and result in consequences that you know you've got to face that you actually have now trapped yourself in um because of the nature of the story and so i think that's a lot of what legendborn is getting at too is that it's so easy for for all of us for anyone to trap themselves in a in a story they tell especially if you're telling it for 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 the wrong reason, and I would say the wrong reason for the, the Legendborn is is that, you know, over time, maybe there, the intention was pure, but at some point, power corrupts. And then the stories get told just to perpetuate the power control rather than um, perhaps, you know, something as benign as, you know, we're here to be honorable people. It's less about that and more about, you know, consolidation of power and all of that leads, I mean, all of that mythologizing is something that, you know, America's very good at. <laughs> we really are. <laughs> that leads me basically to my next question. So obviously you deal pretty directly with the systemic and built-in cultural systems of racism on a variety of levels, mm-hmm. right? Like from from UNC down to like directly on individual members of a family. but. One of the ways that this is introduced to us is through all of the microaggressions that Brie experiences. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's something that someone says innocently, and sometimes obviously very deliberately. So I was curious if you could talk about how you wanted to explore Brie's relationship with bigotry and prejudice through those microaggressions, and obviously the importance of that to you know you and the book in general. You know, I really, really wanted to write a contemporary fantasy story that asked asked hard questions and challenged itself to treat both the fantasy elements and the contemporary elements um, the, sort of the same and uh, press on them, lean on them equally and as subgenres within this, you know, that make up this subgenre of fantasy. <laughs> and it really, that, that was one of my missions um, was bec- because I just don't see a lot of fantasies that actually deal with racism. Their fantasy has been sort of known, well known for having proxies for racism. So you'll have like the people who have like the blue skin or, you know, so-and-so's blood is a different color or, you know, x-men and i love the x-men you know you know the mutants are a proxy for racism actually they're the you know and what i really 
and I'm not the only one. I know other authors of color and particular black authors are just like, yeah, but the problem with that is that, you know, a mutant who doesn't have control over their powers um, is dangerous and like actually is a walking living weapon without you know especially when they first manifest which is sort of the actual trope of x-men it's like when you when you, when, a, when a mutant first manifests their powers they might actually hurt you or kill themselves or others right and black people are not walking weapons so right. you can't make those equivalences like they don't actually work and so i i really said i said well what if we just actually you know, set this in the real world contemporary fantasy is my favorite subgenre to write in it's the one i'm drawn to most as a reader and what if we actually had all of that in the page? And so instead of having, you know, just a stand in for racism, we actually had racism. <laughs> and we actually <laughs> had a protagonist dealing with how things are. That's a wild I know, thought. But, you know, but it's, 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 like, it's actually like legit revolutionary when you look at, you know, contemporary fantasy. Yeah. Like, you know, how often do we see this? And so um, I wanted to do that. And that's a long introduction to saying that, yeah, de- Brie dealing with microaggressions, it was the only way that I could stay true to that mission is that she was going to have this experience. I mean, you can't tell a story about the descendants of the Knights of the Round Table coming from, um, you know, a Western Europe origin story and have part of the power being controlling their bloodlines to such a degree that they have people who are direct, you know, sort of descendants they can track from over you know 15 centuries you can't tell that story and have a black girl at the center and not have microaggressions come up particularly in in the south it would be dishonest of me one thing i can say about the microaggressions is that i realized that with all the things that i'm making up all of the fantasy stuff that i am making up there were certain things in this book that had to stay true and had to be historically accurate so there's like two or three things about UNC that I changed. I mentioned them by name in the um, author's note of the book. Everything else is the same. And with Bree's microaggressions, all of those were drawn on experience, drawn from experiences I had myself. So I didn't have them over the course of like three weeks, the way that you know Bree, <laughs> Bree's life is pretty compressed um, and dense and there's a lot going on. But I did have all of them. I have had all of them as a young person. Um, and so it was really important to me that microaggressions get represented from a factual place because I didn't want anyone to say, well, this is just all made up or like, this is, this didn't really happen. I needed right. to be able to say on the other side, actually, that part of the story is extremely true to life. That's where the contemporary part is, t- is pulling no punches. Um, and that those, those things really did happen and they have to come from a friend of mine read an earlier draft and she's a black woman and she was like, you know, these have to come from people that we like and people we don't like. Like you can't have just the bad white people, you know, have these microaggressions, commit these microaggressions. You actually have to have it happen across the board because that's the experience. Right. And I was like, you're right. You're totally right. Like I, like I've had plenty of friends, people I love, good friends who don't even realize that that's what's happening. And that's part of the story that, that, Brie is living in right is that we're in her head and we're seeing how they affect her negatively in every case but it's difference between someone who she can talk to about it and someone she can't even address that they've just done this to her and someone who's doing it on purpose and so she's never going to be able to like change their mind in one conversation absolutely and I thought what was uh, especially interesting about that was that you are while dealing with you know, both the unintentional and intentional microaggressions from both good people, you know, quote unquote, good people and quote unquote, bad people. You're also dealing with that uh, microaggressions against some other characters, you know, like you contrast Bree's experiences with characters like Greer, Mm -hmm. Sarah, and even Witty. So can you talk a little bit about why you framed that contrast the way that you did? Yeah, I mean, I I think I just needed to show that tools of, you know, systems of power in this book, and particularly goes back to that contemporary fantasy thing, is that systems of power come in all different shapes and sizes, and they can be magical, but they can also be around race and gender um, and class and all these things. And I guess I just, you know, really felt compelled to put my foot on the gas on all of them and to say like, these things don't happen in a vacuum. I couldn't have told a story where it was just Brie who was getting 
who's being called out as different or being treated differently, because that would also be dishonest, right? And But I also needed to show how that intersected with her, because intersectionality is a thing. And, you know, she's living at the intersection of multiple identities, and that does change things for her in a way that it really doesn't affect other people. So with Greer, um, they talk about their experience, but they articulate actually that they they're white and so they know that they have an experience they have experiences that are negative but there is a shield a privileged shield that has limited when they hear it if they if those comments are said directly to their face and so i wanted to sort of show that intersectionality exists um and how that even is going to complicate Bree's mission and the thing that i really i mean what's interesting is I could probably talk at length and I am talking at length about all of the racism and the microaggressions and all of the sort of identity oppression that happens in the book. But a lot of what I wanted to do is show that these types of tools of oppression, these types of micro and microaggressions are really just things that get in people's way. Bree's not there to try and show the order that they're, they've got racist systems. Like she's not there to to show people that they don't treat women correctly. Like she's not there for any of that. She's there to find out what happened to her mother. It just so happens that in a modern day society, in our world, racism is in the air and it's an environmental antagonist that will get in your way whenever you're just trying to do your job. And that's really something I kept in the back of my mind is that I wanted racism to be a, a level of antagonism that is ever present could pop up could pop up at any time and is something that Brie has to deal with on her way to the rest of her life and that is exactly how it feels like there are days I don't wake up thinking I'm black today I wake up thinking I'm Tracy and then someone reminds me that I'm different than they are like and I'm like oh great thank you for that or like now my job is harder or oh there's this other thing that because you have a belief now I have to work a little bit harder like and that's really the the unfortunate experience of racism and um, it's something that I wanted to show because her mission, again, has nothing to do with all that stuff, but it does change her mission. Yeah. One thing that was, as you were talking about this, there's this moment in the book that just, for whatever reason, of, of all of the different things that Brie experiences on this particular issue, the moment when she's at one of the meetings and basically another character says, oh, this is the most diverse meeting we had, and then, like, stares straight at her. That, like, stood out to me <laughs> so much. Uh, as I, And I kept thinking about that moment over and over of just, like... Because I'd never considered that maybe saying that would potentially make something be very uncomfortable for a bunch of people, and yet that's sort of how Brie immediately takes it, of, like, oh, I see exactly what you're doing right now. Uh, and it it just, for some reason, that scene just like, it just jabs me. It just keeps getting me. So really, this is me saying good job. <laughs> <laughs> good. Yeah. I mean, you know, those moments, those are the moments that you accumulate them over and over again. And you're just like, I am really just trying to do my thing. And yet there are people who can't stop talking about or rewarding themselves for my presence in their space. And that is an awful feeling that someone is like, they, they've just got, they've just been able to pat themselves on the back because they allowed you in their, in their house. Like yeah. how demeaning that feels. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of that, just little things that Brie gets this, this sense of, I don't really belong here. And you're kind of telling me that I don't belong here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, and you did make me think too, like this ties into grief because in a way at the very beginning, you know, we have this concept of the after Brie as Brie's dealing with the, you know, the grief of the loss of her mother. But she also has these things that everybody wants to say like, oh, I'm I'm sorry for your loss. They ha There's all these like repeated phrases we say. And from Brie's perspective, that is so hard for her to to handle because the, they are so repeated. They're things that the, she's constantly having thrust at her. Uh, and so it actually becomes a bit of a relief at one moment when she meets someone who doesn't fall into the pattern. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's really interesting to see because, you know, we've, we, I think most everybody does eventually lose someone, but the, those are the things that like, until it's happened, you don't always think about mm -hmm. how the phrases and words you say might just be like almost instinctual. And you're not really thinking about the effect they might have on the other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it 
it's, you know, on some level, it's a, it's an impossible situation because if you haven't, like you said, if you haven't experienced that or you haven't experienced it recently or whatever, even if you have, you know, knowing the right thing to say to a grieving person is just, it's, it's impossible. Um, there is no single right answer, but I do think that there is a, you know, for, for Brie, what she's picking up on is that there are social answers. And right. their social responses and we're sort of like programmed to say certain things. And typically I feel like it's a good rule of thumb that's like if you are saying something you saw on a lifetime movie <laughs> <laughs> and that's the first thing and the only thing that you can think of, like maybe that's, you know, watch your first instinct because we are programmed to to respond in certain ways about grief. And um I think Bree's picking up on that that she's being called into be she's getting called to the the sort of the floor for this performative ritual and she's like I don't really want to be there but people keep trying to call me into it and like invite me to play this back and forth and she's like I don't want to do that and I think that is something that lots of people can you know that can be um applied to a lot of different situations, but definitely for grief. I don't know. When I was experiencing, when I was in the fresh parts of grief, I would just be amazed. It's almost like I was watching other people go through this dance and it didn't really matter even what I said sometimes. They just had this this like step-by-step process they needed to go to the things they needed to say and do. And I would just be like, what are you, who are you doing this for? Is this for me? Like, well, are you, is that, who is that for? Is that just because you saw that on a, like a, a tv show or you know is that just Hallmark exactly yeah, yeah you know or it's like did someone say that to you <laughs> did it actually make you feel better goodness you know there was this sort of observational quality that i had where i was distanced and sort of out of outside of myself well and you know that's kind of one of the things that that is functioning in this as you say with that the saying you know this is the most diverse room that we've had and whatnot is that that people are saying things to make themselves comfortable with the situation mm-hmm not the person who actually needs to be comfortable with the situation yeah it's it's also a reminder too like when you say that this is the most diverse room we've had it's like you've had this this room's been used a lot it's taking you till now (laughs) (laughs) like 1500 years yeah (laughs) and they're like and it's like one person you know and and there's, so, you know, someone's so self-congratulatory. So then it just becomes like, even if you did have the space and the power to say something back, like you would just be like, now you're the ass, right? Like now you're the person who's like, okay, but you're, you're, I, I got a dunk on you because that is not an achievement. I know you feel like you've achieved something, but it's horrible. Like you haven't. And so, you know, the comments like that put you in such a, a weird position, especially when they're made publicly. And I think, oh yeah, you know, the pub, yeah. <laughs> Well, like specifically in that case, she clearly wasn't trying to pat herself on the back for it being diverse. It was a direct insult to Brie for even being in this space. Right. Yeah. Right. But I do, but I do think like in that moment, you know, this is Tor. I do think in that moment there's a clout claim, there's a clout collection moment happening. Yeah. Right? Because like right. then it's like you know if you say it out loud and then you get to like, and then there's applause, you know, like, you know, there's this, there's this other thing where you get to be able to be the person to have said that. Right. And I do think there's a lot of performative allyship that can look, that can look like that where it's like, yes. okay, if it was, if you weren't going to say it out loud, then maybe I could interpret this differently. But the fact that you put it out on the timeline or the fact that you, you know, you made a blog post about it or whatever, you know, <laughs> like the fact that you made it very, very public means that you were, also, you were talking to other white people, probably, not just me, you know? So speaking of being in white spaces, uh, it's very important in this, and, and speaking to people who, who might be better uh, equipped to know what language to talk to somebody grieving, and that's the situations in which Brie is with other Black women, specifically with her therapist and with Mariah. And those become sort of decompression chambers, so to speak, but also anchors for Mm -hmm. her in a different space. Can you talk a little bit about how that functions both for Brie and within the larger context of the novel? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that I wanted to, like you said, is have a decompression space is just have a space where the reader could feel with Brie that she didn't have to be as vigilant 
or, mm. you know, in a position of sort of bracing for impact at all times. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about safe spaces and what those mean. And you, you've heard people talk about those before. And I think people just don't really understand that it's not that you want to be protected from harm. It's that you can let your guard down. And that is about a function that you can uh, release, not so much about, you know, being safe from someone saying something that hurts your feelings or whatever. Um, and when you are on guard all the time, it's exhausting. It's it's completely exhausting. I mean, one if nothing else, I hope this book, when it comes to racism, communicates how exhausting it is. Like, it's just <laughs> like, you're just like, oh my gosh, here again, you know, or like, you know, I thought I was in, I was amongst friends, but now I have to explain, don't touch my hair, you know, or whatever. And to be able to go to spaces where you don't have to do that um, is incre incredibly rewarding. And I know that's, that's particularly, I'm speaking from my experience, but that's true for many marginalized folks who um, can take, you know, feel that sort of release in their chest when they're around people where they don't have to worry as much about uh, their identity being um, called into discussion or debated or <laughs> criticized or whatever. Yeah. Another side to this, I was thinking as you're you're mentioning you know, the way that you're treated in certain spaces, you know, Nick has another character that kind of, ex in a different way, but experiences this as well because of his, and we won't say a whole lot about what his role exactly is, he's just handsome. That's really his role. <laughs> it is. Uh, he's cute. <laughs> but he has these, these moments where he's entering into these spaces, you know, where the magic and stuff is happening. And it's clear that he's not comfortable because he is, he fulfills a specific role within that space that comes with enormous pressures. Mm -hmm. And that happens with a, a number of different characters in different ways, but you kind of explore that same thing in just a slightly different way with these other characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, some of that's just... I mean, YA is so wonderful for a lot of reasons. There are a lot of um, boundaries you can push at in YA. I think that YA is doing incredible work around identity and incredible subversive work even around typical sort of commonly uh, published fictional stories about what it means to be a person in the world. What I love about it is that when you center teen or young adult protagonists, you can really show what it's like to be figuring yourself out under pressure. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that is one of the hallmarks, at least from my experience of being a teenager or a young person is like, you're literally figuring out who you are under, you know, under immense pressure sometimes under, uh, you know, people who have different expectations of what you can and can't do. And you are also figuring out what you can and can't do and what you're willing to do that isn't endorsed by an adult in your life because that may be the first time that you've been able to do that. So I do love that there that all of that is happening for these characters. Um, but of course, because it's YA fantasy, this is, I say, of course, it's not necessarily given, but a lot of YA fantasy will have teenagers in a position of power that they, they have some sort of important role because they're, they're centered in the story. And so with the Legendborn, they are pr pretty powerful. Like they're, they're described as being, um, in terms of the hierarchy of the order of the of the secret society, they're pretty high up, and they they're only a few people that they answer to. And so I think having teenagers go through all that stuff, but then having them have lots of power and impact, and then showing where they have none, is like part of the fun for me from a craft perspective. <laughs> I I feel like you just gave a synopsis of Legendborn without ever like mentioning you know what it's actually about, which was brilliant. Like that idea of characters finding out who they are which yes is you know definitely a function of YA but as Sean and I were when we first connected today on our call Sean was like this book is such a roller coaster <laughs> and it is because it's like one chapter after another of not just Brie finding out who she really is but Selwyn mm -hmm. and Nick and so many of the other characters, but particularly those three. And, like, we haven't even mentioned Selwyn yet. And, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. If this was not a YA, you know, I'm definitely into the bathroom. <laughs> Selwyn, I, I sometimes wonder if he like, might be my greatest creation, if I've peaked already as a, as a writer. Oh because there are so many people who are just like, oh, my gosh, Selwyn. And I feel like I put, you know, I made him in a lab. 
in my mind. And then um, it just so happens that the output is this character that so many different people have just attached themselves to. And I love it. I mean, as a fangirl, I love characters like that too, right? So I knew I may have gone into the lab with a little bit of an idea of (laughs) what I wanted to come out. But I mean, there's... (laughs) Let's just say that there's a little bit of Lucas in oh, Solwyn, I think. Yeah, a little bit. And yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit of Sequest Lucas. I mean, he's, you know, I've I've comped him to like, he's a little Loki. He's a little like young Sherlock. He's a little yes. um, Damon Salvatore from the Vampire Diaries. Like, he's sort of, he's a mixture, mixture of all three of those in like the best possible way. Um, he's also a little tiny Zuko. Like, he's got... He's got oh, like yeah. so much going on, all the best parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and his his discovery, you know, like I feel like Brie at the beginning, you know, has already started that that journey of self-discovery because but she's, you know, very much like partitioned herself off from it, you know, with the before Brie and the after Brie. And then has so many reveals that she's like, oh, okay, uh, well, there we go. I guess I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Selwyn, Selwyn is very firm in who he is mm-hmm. when the book starts. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you first meet him. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, slight spoilers. All of that is thrown out the window and he's forced to contend with it. And and I it, to an extent that happens to Nick as well. Who's yeah. like, yeah, you know, I know who I am, but I rejected it. Selwyn has accepted it as this is exactly who I am. And and both of them have have moments of whoa. I, it's just so we're being really clear. Jen is, is talking about the fact that, that Sel finds out that he is the lost member of New Kids on the Block. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Exactly. He's the one yes. he's the and he was he's also he was a character that was discarded from the early pilot of Sequest. And then yeah. He's actually back later, but no, but like from a, you know, from a craft, from an authorial standpoint, you know, what makes a book in a universe like the Legendborn universe really have legs is that every character has an arc and you, there's, I don't know who said it, but there's this idea that every, your, your secondary and tertiary characters don't know they're not the main character. And they, you know, write them as though they are the main character of their story because they are. And that's, you know, that's, that's sort of true and, and treat them that way. And for me, I knew that I needed both of the boys, both Nick and Sal, to have their own arc. Their relationship also had to have its own arc. Yeah. Um, like they, I really was very adamant, I think, from, from the beginning that if I was going to include any sort of hint of a love triangle, that and it's not quite there in this book but it's i talk about it enough that i feel like i could say that but um that it's close enough (laughs) yeah it's close enough it's very it's close but um that you know they couldn't be at each other's throats because of brie i didn't want like that's a that's a very common setup for a love triangle in this particularly a ya book and i didn't want that i was like okay well that's not going to be their relationship they're going to have tensions that are that have started way before brie shows up have nothing to do with Brie and will progress even around her and through her, but not necessarily because of her. Um, and they, so Nick and Selwyn have an arc, you know, William, I think has the beginnings of an arc. I think, uh, I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that in book two, he, he continues on and we see, you know, more of William, we see more of everybody, you know, but um, Alice, Brie's best friend has an arc. You know, there's, there's just this, um, there's, you know, development, I think, for all these characters and off, and off the page, we even, I think, see some growth happening with other characters like Bree's dad, even, I think, has like a very small, his arc is not as, as dramatic, perhaps, but it is there. Um, well, it's a parent, it's a parental arc, for mm-hmm. sure, you know, mm-hmm. like, as a parent of two older teenagers, Shadowborn. You can, you I can was... be honest. They're Shadowborn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, that's not unlikely, actually. But it, anyway, it, his arc was very familiar to me. Mm. As like, like sort of that acceptance path. But mm-hmm. he's also going to go through some other things. I mean, obviously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, he's got a lot to go through. Parents yeah. have a lot to go through. 
Yeah. Yes. Especially the parent who's left behind in a situation like that. Um, so yeah, I just, and I don't, you know, you may have been getting to that point, but like, yeah, I, I do think they all have arcs and things to discover. And that's what keeps that to me as someone who, like I said, has been a lifelong fangirl to me, that's what keeps a universe alive in my mind is that I feel like the other characters I've watched them grow and off the page when the main character's not there, I feel like they're still alive and they still have a whole perspective they could do. I don't think this is when I announce that I'm going to write an entire book of like Selwyn's POV. <laughs> like, I don't know <laughs> that I'm going to do like a Stephanie Meyer, although I could. Um, but you know, that having space in your story for that to, yeah. have, to be believable is so important to creating a compelling book. Absolutely. Absolutely. With an ensemble in, at least, you know. Yeah, and we're now at like the 45-50 minute mark, and I still have like 10,000 more questions. So okay. this is like <laughs> progressing beautifully, I'm just saying. Tracy's like, oh, no, just fine. Yeah, just go. Just go. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's fine. So I did want to talk about magic because uh, there's a lot of it in this book. Uh, you know, it is a fantasy, and so it, it features people doing magic things, and it features monstrous creatures, and, you know, basically magic sword arms and things like that you know basically everything that a magic lover could want in life and so <laughs> i was hoping you could talk a little bit about how you kind of were trying to incorporate the the types of magic especially specifically with like the legend born which we don't spoil other elements but you know the, the legend born and the merlins and all of these kind of unique characters and they're what they refer to as aether magic which is really interesting and also creepy and scary at times <laughs> you know and it, it gets incorporated into the characters into the story it becomes a huge part of the first oh i don't know like 150 pages of the book it's like very mm -hmm. central um and so i was hoping you could talk a little bit about like where you were drawing it from and sort of exploring those things and how they relate to the characters yeah so i really wanted there to be a magic system that supported a realistic situation where characters could be descended from the Knights of the Round Table. And so the magic system, a lot of the complexities in the magic system I built because of trying to make it realistic and the rules and the magic and like how could things be underground for that long. And in contemporary fantasy and also in urban fantasy, which is sort of its sister genre, sister subgenre, um, the idea of magic that only certain people can see is very common, right? Because we have to be able to explain why magic is not something that everyone at large knows in a closed world um, magical story, which is where, what Legendborn is. It's closed world in that like not everybody knows about it, whereas open world is like everybody knows the vampires exist, you know. Um, and so with this book, I really had to come up with systems that would allow for the Legendborn to operate in secret and be sort of covert. Um, but then also there had to be a tipping point where if things escalated, then they would impact humans who didn't know anything about the world. Um, and so one of the, the, one of the ways I did that was to talk about a spell being what allowed them to have the abilities that they had and creating a story around what happened 1500 years ago that was strong enough that it could survive to the modern day. This is where I drew a little bit on Susan Cooper because that happens, um, in The Dark is Rising. There are things that the light users, magic users can see that other people can't see. And then there's, you know, how do they persist that long? And so contemporary fantasy actually helps you build magic systems just by the nature of it being magic in a modern day world, because you just have to ask yourself, what about the world would change or be different for me to allow this to happen? Believably, right? Um, because when you have second world fantasy, you have the reader is hopping along with you into a completely different circumstance where they don't necessarily have expectations about how the magic is, is seen or used. Um, and with the, the magic that the Legendborn use, they are able to pull... Um, I, I go back and forth with ether and aether. I'm going to go with ether right now, but like I totally said aether for two years. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, with the magic they pull from the air, ether is a resource that's pulled, you know, that's in the air. It's invisible to the sort of mundane human eye, and then it can be pulled, you know, into existence and then formed by some people into weapons or constructs is what they're called in the book. And so the Legendborn um, can pull those into weapons or shields or other devices or other things. And I, I really love the flexibility of that. I love the visualness of it. I used to work in video game production. So I love the idea, the visual of 
something coalescing out of the air and becoming something that the wielder wanted it to become. Um, yes. So, yeah, I mean, my secret hope is that, like, of course, it gets, like, adapted into a television show and then we get to see that because I, yes! feel, I feel like it would be so pretty. <laughs> yeah. And just fun, you know? Um but also we needed to, I needed to have a way to explain why they didn't have to carry around weapons all the time because they're college students. <laughs> so, right. It's so like, they can't just like, like they can have some weapons that are sort of metal weapons or material weapons, but they, but they needed to be able to draw on something more powerful than that if they were, if they came across a demon. And the, one of the ways that I could do that is if the magic was always around them, but they didn't always activate it to create it, to create something. Absolutely. I do have a question about this. If you were hungry, could you form it into a sandwich? I, I, I think, um, I, 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 hmm, how do I answer this? Cer- certain, certain beings could. That's my answer. Oh, wow. I was, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know that it would be, I don't think it fulfills the same purpose as like, baloney like i don't think it like gives you like food power but like i no. do think it, there are beings who who do consume either in the book and could yeah. oh that's yeah fun. no spoilers, no spoilers but, yeah. yeah yeah well i think i don't think it's a huge spoiler that selwyn has an interesting relationship with it i, mm-hmm. I don't want to joke about it as we mentioned beforehand but uh selwyn definitely is consuming it to a degree yeah, he's using it, it. It affects his body differently because of because Merlins have a stronger affinity mm-hmm. with ether, and so they they are using it. I mean, Merlins are the only characters that can form anything with ether, right? Um, For reasons which yeah. we will not mention at this time. <laughs> yeah, because they're because they're yeah because of, that's why they're Merlins. But you know, right. but they're but the other characters can only form like specific weapons related to their night that's that's really cool though mm-hmm. I, I i think yes. so too <laughs> i think what's really cool is when you start to like piece together a lot of the magic you you have all of like the good hallmarks of a magic system because it's got its mm-hmm. limitations uh it has its effects both mm-hmm. you know for their benefit and potential also harm right because it kind of can come both ways and it's really really nice to see that in a in a, in a ya fantasy because um i just I just like it. That's really what it comes down to. I realize that's not a clever comment. It's just that I think it really works and makes for a very interesting experience, especially as Bree's sort of like discovering all of this stuff and is giving us this very unique perspective on it. Yeah. And it's hard to, it's hard to communicate that. Um, As a writer, I had to decide like how to sort of drip the information because Bree's the outsider. So she's our self-insert character. How does she stumble upon, you know, a little bit more information about how the magic works? How much can she be told versus how much do we do we and she, you know, do we learn by her witnessing it and sort of gathering the information? Yeah. It's really it's difficult to do. But um, and I hope I did an OK job. But uh, I also realized that I was setting up a magic system that I was going to then use for the next book. So I'm really excited about in the sequel just using it. Because it took like a year and a half to create this magic system. That's awesome. I mean, wh- whiteboards all over my house. Um, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> spreadsheets with multiple sheets and tabs, color coding. I mean, like I really spent a lot of time on it. Um, and now I get to sort of reap the rewards as the creator and just sort of play with it and maximize it. Because, of course, it's a sequel. So everything has to be, you know, bigger and magic has to ha- be... Uh, has to build on itself. And so now I've got so much to play with. It took a really, really long time um, to come up with something that, you know, and then stress test it and be able to make sure that it could carry a whole universe and a whole series. This, right. Because oh, this, this ooh, writing problem, okay. like, you know, the info dump problem, it's, it's sort of like, do you go full Turkish star Wars or do you not go that route? And most people have not seen Turkish stars. So Tracy, <laughs> I, will, I will let you know that the Turkish star Wars problem is that it opens with like a 10 minute explanation narration of what has happened for the last bazillion years. And it's almost impossible to follow because they're basically describing like massive events that have taken place for centuries in a fairly compressed amount of time so that when the movie actually starts, it's just like a guy staring at you doing ninja kicks and you're like, I don't what how did we get here? 
<laughs> yeah, but then it spends the rest of the movie not explaining anything at all. So you have to like perform guesswork, right? Based on the ten minute opening spiel that made no sense in the first place. It's it's it's, it's something. It's so hard, you know. And and like in this book, um, we have two sort of information characters, characters that like you know they generally when you meet them they're going to give you new information. Um, and one of those is William and the be- you know, the, I feel like the, I feel like my answer to being like, okay, William is really about to just lay a whole bunch of information on Brie. Um, and I'm going to try and make it so we, you know, it's been telegraphed for the previous chapters that we're about to learn something and that I'm going to try and make it so that it's earned, but also I'm going to put it in a nice package, which is William, who's a wonderful character. The best package! (laughs) He's wonderful. (laughs) And he's like another character that a lot of people have said that they love, and that makes me so happy because William, I think, deserves everything. I feel, like, really proud of him as a a character. That's so sweet. (laughs) I, I think we're coming up towards the end And I know you've said that it's very hard not to give spoilers, so I'm not going to ask you to give spoilers. I'm going to ask you to to somehow convey to people that there is so much more without giving spoilers. Yeah, I can do that for sure. Excellent. Yes. Yes, I can do that. I can rise to the challenge. So, uh, yeah, Legendborn is not just about one one girl one character's journey towards finding out the truth of something that happened in the past it's very much about um figuring out where histories of multiple people multiple lives multiple generations intersect because they do and even in our real world um i think we are still wrestling with and wrangling with the idea that that histories intersect and that there are multiple versions of it and multiple perspectives and this book is definitely about personal history community history social history um and how all of those things intersect to create legends but also mysteries and sometimes sometimes power that was the most clever workaround (laughs) good job Oh, well, well done. Well done. (laughs) All right. So we're coming to close out time, which means I want to end with one more very serious question, which is actually just a silly question. And it is the reason that I'm pretty sure it's the reason that this interview uh, came about because we were tweeting at one another about this television show that uh, both you and Jen have seen and adore. And that show is Sequest. And folks may remember that, it's the one with the dolphin. And if you don't remember it, you can watch it right now on Peacock. But I want to know, Tracy, what what's the de- why do you love it so much? What's the deal? Um, I love Sequest so much because it is, in many ways, the embodiment of a bottle episode because they are literally trapped on a submarine. <laughs> And the episodes where they don't leave the sub are just like bottle episode horrific, and I just love that. Um, I also really adore the motley band working together to like be the like pirates, but not, but also like the uniformed pirates working for good type vibe that is happening in Sequest. I think that is really lovely, and I like that it's near future. It's not too, too far in the future. It's near future. So there's recognizable technology paired with technology that was supposed to be super advanced. Um, and that's just usually fun. And plus, um, Jonathan Brandis, who really was had my heart for most of my youth. Yes, yeah. indeed. These are the reasons. Those are perfectly good reasons. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tracy. So if folks want to find you and your work, where's the best places to go? Sure. I am at tracydeon.com. That's T-R-A-C-Y-D-E-O-N-N. And I, on Instagram and Twitter, I am at Tracy Dion. So are, is there anything that you, any work or any events that you might be attending, say, from late October on that you might want folks to know about? Right now, I don't think I have anything confirmed that I can announce. Um, I am doing... Um, I've done a couple other podcasts. I'm doing a new podcast called Dreaming in the Dark that's about um, fantasy and genre from the perspective of 
black female readers and black readers. So that is a that will be airing probably in that time range. Um, and that, that's going to be kind of cool. I like supporting they're brand new, I like to support brand new product podcast. In terms of events, I'll try and uh, keep them public on my Instagram. I've got um, a couple of events in mid October, but not late. Um, but I'm always getting invited to new things. So I'll probably if as long as you follow me on Twitter, or Instagram, you'll see. Perfect. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the book has been incredibly successful. So it makes sense that suddenly everybody's like, Tracy, Tracy, (laughs) (laughs) you're brilliant. Please come on our show. (laughs) I'm really excited to see like where we go in terms of like two, three months from now. And if we'll be then having just tons of spoilery conversations. That's my my dream. I mean, yes, yes, yes. Oh, I want all the spoilery conversations. Okay, oh, calm down. But it's okay right now. It's sorry. Okay, okay. All right, we got we gotta end this podcast at some point. And so, thank you so much, Tracy, for coming on the show with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Oh, oh, feels all warm, warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> she likes us. She really likes us. <laughs> And uh, as always, if you'd like to support us, you can find us in all kinds of places. We have a website, skiffingfanny.com, and a newsletter run by Stephen Geigen Miller at skiffingfanny.com slash newsletter. Twitter at skiffingfanny. We also have an Instagram now at skiffingfanny, correct, Jen? Yes, instagram.com slash skiffingfanny. And then we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash skiffingfanny, Facebook at facebook.com slash skiffingfanny. This is a trend and uh you can support us on patreon at patreon.com slash giffy and and uh beyond that uh you know it's been nice going this long with not needing to wear professional clothes so i can wear shorty shorts and look like an 80s boy i approve same (laughs) awesome (laughs) (laughs) and on that note awkward ending and scene If you would like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. You can also find us on our website, skiffyandfanty.com, and on Twitter, at skiffyandfanty. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. The music for this episode comes from Sphere by Creo. You can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org.